0: Job, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, as in, I know that my Redeemer lives. Those famous words from the book of Job. The author of the book of Job is unidentified, as we've seen in many of the Old Testament books. Early Jewish tradition attributed the book to Moses. It's possible he wrote the book after first hearing an oral account from his father-in-law, Jethro. The land of Midian is kind of in that same area. During his time in Midian, though the exact date of its writing is unknown, many scholars believe that the book of Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. Job is a story of suffering. It asks two of the hardest questions in the world. Why do good people suffer? And how can a good, loving God allow such horrible suffering in the world. Theologians have a a word for that dilemma, it's called theodicy, this question of how can how can there be so much suffering if, if God is loving. So, as far as the itinerary, the outline of the book of Job, first we, we learn about the physical malady, the afflictions that come upon Job, and we also learn that there's this scene in heaven that Job is totally Uh, ignorant of, he's unaware of, that's really bringing about his suffering. But he is trying to wrestle through why this is happening, as are his friends. Most of the book is the the mental agony. In other words, Job and his three friends trying to sort out all of this and why it's happening and understand it. And then in the last few chapters of the book, we have the ultimate victory. As Job is restored gospel, well, when Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, he was anticipating God's Messiah, a suffering man who was able to look ahead to a living Redeemer who would suffer to guarantee Job's own resurrection. Because the time period in which Job took place is unclear, we don't have a thorough understanding of what was going on in the larger world at the time. We know that Job was a wealthy and respected leader in his community, and that he lived to a ripe old age. He most likely communicated his story orally to the next generation, who eventually passed that story down to Moses and others. What can we learn from the book of Job? Here are the travel tips. Suffering sometimes makes us feel like divine playthings. And it can be unnerving, But doesn't mean God doesn't care about you. It just means he is keeping a bigger picture in mind as he allows certain things to happen in your life. This next one I didn't include in your handout for the sake of space, but that's simply what we can learn from Job's three friends. And that is, walk softly around a broken heart. When someone has experienced a loss or is going through a trial, be tender and careful. It's a valuable ministry, just to sit and commiserate with a wounded soul. Sometimes, often, that is what is it needed. Then not everything that hurts is bad. Think of Jesus being beaten and crucified to pay the price for your sins. Rather than getting stuck on what you don't understand about God, Camp out on what you know to be true about your good, loving, gracious, all-knowing, all-powerful, always-present Father in heaven. Those are the things to concentrate. Not on the things that we don't yet understand. So, one of the things that we need to look at before we talk about the content of the book of Job is where where did this take place? When I was in seminary, I took a course on the Book of Job, and this is one of the, one of the papers that I wrote for that that course. Um, I like alliteration, so the title I gave my paper was "Milieu of Melancholy." You know what a milieu is? It's it's a that's the setting, the the um, environment where something happens. So, Milieu of Melancholy, another way to say that might be the the setting of sadness. And the subtitle I gave it is, The Unsettled unsettled Setting of the Book of Job. And so, one of the the things that I dealt with extensively in this paper was the location of the land of Uz. I found that there are two main uh, claimants for the honor, if you will, of, of being the land of Uz. One of these is in Syria, so it would be to, to the northeast of Israel, the Haran region of Syria. This Haran region has a, a monastery of Job, and it has a fountain of Job, a lavatory of Job. Um, <laughs> that's a, it's a stone trough in which Job supposedly bathed after his uh, trials were over. And it has a stone of Job and a tomb of Job. So that's northeast of Israel. The other claimant is southeast of Israel in Saudi Arabia. The oasis of Jauf, it's variously called Juf or El Juf or El Jaf. They also have an alleged tomb of Job. Uh, It uh, it is the region of, of Job's three friends. It was a fertile agricultural region. It was a trading center. It was on the edge of the great Nafud Desert. And there are ruins from the 2nd from the millennium BC. So let's, let's take a look at those two locations. So there you have where Haran is located. So it's right up here. It's, it's just east of the Golan Heights. It's here in Syria. And there's a photo of the ground level in this, in this region. Uh, the other claimant, uh, so here, here's Israel up here, here's the Red Sea, all of this is Saudi Arabia. Up here in the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia is where the oasis of Juf is located. And here's a photo of at the ground level of the o- oasis of Juf, that area. It's, it's a large area, so it's more than just this picture. But, and over here you see some ruins. And I'll talk a little bit about those later. So let's let's talk about these two areas and see if there's any validity to these claims. Well, the dubious nature of Iran's claim comes to light in some of the, I'm quoting from myself here, by the way. (laughs) The the dubious nature of of Haran's claim comes to light in some of the more fanciful tales which emanate from its Job culture. There is a a Job culture in this area, but is it really valid? Well, on a visit to the area, Wettstein, he's a scholar who traveled to that area, he was shown a handful of small, long, round stones and told that these were the worms that fell to the ground out of Job's sores, petrified. So I think you can, you can see where this is headed. The stone declared by guides to be the very rock upon which Job leaned when he was afflicted by his Lord is not derived from the scriptural account. That's not in the Bible, but they had the story about this stone on which he leaned. And the concept of a fountain of Job, which sprang forth at the stamping of his foot, is a notion which comes from the Quran, not from the Bible. So I, I, I do. There, there's not uh, good support for this location in Syria as actually being the Uz. I think that this is a story which, as the story of Job, came up from the south on, along the caravan routes. So it became a popular story, especially once, once. Uh, Islam came along, and so they uh, made up all these stories about that being the land of Uz. Now let's look at the, the southern location, the o- oasis of Juf. It's, it's a large area. The, the oasis is 60 miles long, and 12 to 15 miles wide. Now th- I think this is significant. The hometowns of Job's three friends have been located in this region. So the, the hometowns where Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, where they lived, is, is not too far from, from this oasis. And Juv is described as an excellent agricultural region. It was such a verdant, in such a virgin location that Job was able to utilize his 500 yoke of oxen. From we read about those from the story of Job. And south of the oasis runs the Wadi el-Sarhan. There's a, a stream that runs south of there. Much of this area is a vast, flat pastureland, land, fairly well suited to the raising of camels, donkeys, sheep, and goats, the livestock of Job. While the Juf oasis itself is a fertile area, it is located on the edge of the great Nafud Desert. And this is entirely in accord with the biblical description of Job's homeland as being near the desert or wilderness. Remember that a tornado came from the wilderness, from the desert, and destroyed the home where Job's children were partying. So we know that that this land of Uz was located near the wilderness, near near the desert. Juf was for centuries a major commercial hub, an important crossroad for Caravans and merchants flying their wares. And Job's friends talk about this, about caravans, in in their discourse with with Job. This made it an attractive target for marauders, like the ones who carried off Job's livestock. Juf is one of Saudi Arabia's richest regions in terms of antiquities. Some of the ruins in the Juf region are dated to as early as the second millennium B.C., the time of the patriarchs, which is when I think the events that are described in the Book of Job took place. so I think the the basis for identifying this southern location as being the land of us is much more much more credible than the than the northern one so now that we 've talked about the location of job let 's talk about the identity of Job himself. <coughs> One of the things that we like to do when we're studying a book of the Bible is to look for cross-references. What other books of the Bible talk about what is talked about in this book? Well, there are different people named Job in the Bible. So one of the, this is one of the candidates. Um, the sons of Issachar, Tolo, Puva, Job, and Shimron. Now this this verse is when Israel is down in Egypt. Um, I was once uh, a member of a church that that taught that this Job that we're reading about here was the book was the Job of the Book of Job, and they also taught that this Job was um, responsible for the building of the pyramids. Well. Neither one of those two claims really stands under scrutiny because I think that, that uh, the events in the book of Job took place long before Israel was down in Egypt. And I think that Job, Job, this Job probably could not have amassed the wealth and the herds that he did when he, while he was down in Egypt. You know That was the time when Israel eventually became... Captive to the Egyptians, and as far as the other claim that this job was responsible for building the pyramids, um, the pyramids also were built long before Israel was in Egypt. And remember that the pyramids are constructed of stone blocks, and Israel did not work with stone blocks. Israel worked with mud brick. So, so I don't think that this job is the job of the Book of Job. Now, a more likely candidate, I think, is uh, that Job was a descendant of Esau, also known as Edom, and his descendants are known as Edomites. Uh, Earlier in the book of Genesis, it talks about when Bella died, Job Ab, Job father, or father Job, son of Zerah from Basra, succeeded him as king. And when it calls him king, it's probably more like a a sheikh, a a tribal chieftain. Um, I I think that this is much more likely uh, because I think the location is more likely. It's it's on the edge of Edom. Um, Job's three friends all have Edomite names. They're from Edomite cities. And Jewish tradition says that uh, Job was a a righteous Gentile, not not an Israelite. I think if, if we can equate Job, the book Job of the book of Job with anybody, I think it's more likely that this is him. Now, some people say that some scholars say that that Job wasn't a real person; that this was just a a, a story, a parable to teach us about suffering. And that is possible, but when we look at other scriptures about this Job, of the book of Job. Uh, one of these is in Ezekiel. It says, Noah, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. So this is shortly before the time that Jerusalem is destroyed. And God is saying that even if these three righteous men were in Jerusalem, they could only save themselves. They couldn't. They couldn't fend off the, the judgment that is going to come upon Judah and Jerusalem. And then Job is mentioned in the New Testament, in James. As you know, we count it. We count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So when we look at these scriptures that mention Job, it sounds like they're talking about a real historical person. It doesn't sound like they're talking about some mythical figure. So I tend to think that Job was a real person. These events described in the book of Job actually did happen. Now that we've taken a look at at job let's let's take a look at his three friends the These three friends of Job's kind of get all mushed together and we just can't distinguish between the three of them but they actually do have three distinct personalities Eliphaz the Temanite he's the, the real theologian of the bunch the theologian based his arguments on a vision of God's greatness he even claimed that he had this supernatural experience where God appeared to him which I don't think was real but that's what he said anyway then there's Bildead. Now he's the traditionalist. Based, he based his view on time-honored concepts of justice. So he, he was a stickler for this. You know, If you're good, good things will happen to you. If you're bad, bad things will happen to you. That period. That's it. And then Zophar was the moralist. He based his opinions on the consensus of human wisdom. So he was one to emphasize human wisdom. There, there's a joke about Bildad, by the way. Um, people have asked, who was the shortest man in the Bible? Some people say that it was Nehemiah. Others say that it was Bildad, the Height. Actually, it was the Apostle Peter. Because he was so small that he slept on his watch. Oh. <laughs> You've got to have some humor when you're looking at Job, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did, you, did you get that? <laughs> okay, so the first two chapters of Job talk about Job's character. Job is a man of of devout moral character, integrity, totally devoted to what is godly and good. God himself says that. That's not just Job's opinion. Then we read about Job's calamity. Satan deprives Job of his property and children. Job is ignorant of the cosmic dimensions of his experience. He has no clue as to why all of this is happening, nor do his friends, by the way. Job's commitment. Well, that didn't work, so, so Satan inflicts a second round of more intense calamities, calamities on Job. So the first set of calamities happened to people and things around Job, but now Satan focuses attention in on Job himself and deprives him of his health. But Job responds by re- reasserting his commitment to God. And then we have the appearance of Job's friends. Three Associates come to sympathize with Job. They seem to be his intellectual peers, not, not just personal friends, but his intellectual peers. Men of wisdom like Job. Now, also in this prologue, we have some words from Job's wife. She makes an appearance here in the prologue. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? These are not exactly the most encouraging words that one spouse ever gave to another. But um, there's is, there is an interesting textual um, item here. Now, our, all of our English translations say, curse God and die. But if you look at a Hebrew Bible, That's not what it says. The Hebrew Bible says, bless God and die. Well, how can that be? If the Hebrew says, bless God and die, why do our English translations say, curse God and die? Well, here's what's going on. When the Jewish scribes were copying the book of Job, When they came to the part that says curse God and die, they could not bring themselves to actually write curse God. That was just too blasphemous to write. So even though they knew that originally it said curse God and die, they wrote bless God and die, knowing that everyone would just understand that because they weren't going to write curse God. So that's the the story behind that. Now the, the main body of the book of Job is structured around three cycles. So Job's three friends each speak, and Job responds to each one of those three. And this happens three times. There, there's three friends and three cycles. In the first cycle of speeches, Job begins with an opening lament. After that, has built in so far. speak in turn, with Job responding after each of them. In these initial speeches the positions of all the speakers are clearly stated and their subsequent speeches for the most part reiterate and expand on what they say in the first cycle. So I'll I'll just give you a a brief synopsis of of what happens in each cycle. Um, Eliphaz, he, he talks about the existence of calamity, in Job's case, is certain evidence of personal sin. And he counsels Job to repent. So there's that idea of retribution, that if you do good things, good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things, then bad will happen to you. And the reverse, according to this understanding, is also true. That If bad things are happening to you, you must have sinned. Bildad, uh, God never perverts justice. This is what Bildad says. He always destroys the wicked and he always prospers the righteous. That's Bildad's view. So far, if Job is suffering, his affliction must be justly deserved. And he doesn't have much sympathy for Job. And once again, Job doesn't just speak at the end of these three. He responds to each one, but I'll, I'll just give you a little summary of some of the things that Job says he steadfastly refuses to acknowledge his suffering is due to sin. He doesn't know why he's suffering, but he knows that sin is not the cause of his suffering. Uh, Some things that happen in, in this cycle. Satan predicted that calamity would cause Job to curse God to his face. But Job does not do that. Instead, he curses the day of his birth. Parallel curses in Jeremiah and Lamentation suggest that these words do not express an unrighteous sentiment. Godly piety does not necessitate that reason must squelch passion as though correct theology drains healing out of a pious response to God. So it's not wrong if you cry out in anguish to God because you don't understand what is happening in your life. That's not wrong. That's not sinful. And we can see that in in many of the psalms where the psalmist is lamenting. In the experience of Eliphaz, the sons of the fool are oppressed and they have no safety or deliverer to assist them. Although Eliphaz does not speak directly of Job's situation, the reference to sons, even if it's unintentional, is at best an insensitive allusion to the loss of Job's children. In his zealous attempt to corrupt Job, Eliphaz has managed to rub salt in his wounds. He talks about how the sons of the fool are going to get their just reward. Unlike Eliphaz, who started his speech to Job with affirming words, at least Eliphaz at least started out that way, Bildad begins by calling Job a windbag. For Bildad, the issue is clear and simple. The blameless are always blessed by God. The wicked always punished. No exceptions. Bildad's dogmatism refuses to consider experience that would contradict his fixed formula. Bildad objects that Job's complaint is maligning God's righteous character. So if you're getting bad things, then you deserve it, and don't you dare complain about it. In the second cycle of speeches, once again, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zohar speak in turn, with Job responding to each of them. Their dialogue becomes more strained, abusive, and cutting, as all of the speakers struggle to make sense of Job's situation. They all think they have the answer, and so they're frustrated when, when their answer isn't accepted. So this time around, Eliphaz is less sympathetic. He charges that Job is suffering the fate deserved by a very wicked person. Not just a wicked person, but a very wicked person if he's having so much difficulty, so many trials. Bildad wants to persuade Job that questioning God is wrong and will have dire consequences. There are, there's going to be consequences if you keep complaining about this, Job. So far, jo- Job is experiencing... The expected fate of the wicked, so it's just natural that Job would be suffering, and he feels insulted by Job because Job won't expect his won't accept his arguments, so he feels insulted. Job challenges the claims to superior knowledge. These three friends claim that they all have superior knowledge to Job, and Job says, "No, you don't." And then Job expresses his feelings that he. He's abandoned, has been abandoned by God and by everyone else. Um, in, in this cycle, Job makes this comment about, oh, um, about how, how why he's making a sarcastic comment about how wise his friends are. And he says, oh, and I suppose that knowledge will die with you, <laughs> wisdom will die with you. And then Job makes this famous comment. He expresses his disgust for the friends. I have heard many things like these, like the things that his friends are saying. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? So they have lots of stuff to offer, but Job is just not buying it. There are a couple of comments that Job makes that are foreshadowings of the coming of the Messiah, coming of Christ. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. So that's one, one verse that... And, and we'll talk, I'll talk about another one in just a minute here. Even more striking. Uh, the word pledge... Using the language of commercial law, Job calls upon God to accept a pledge for him against the charges by his friends that Job is guilty. And uh, One of the commentaries explains this. It says, this is the technical language of security for loans. In Israelite law and practice, a debtor who could not discharge his debt promptly was obliged to deposit some object in his possession as a guarantee of later payment. So Job sees himself as as being in the position of a debtor who has offered a pledge of his integrity. So that's the cultural context in which that word pledge is used. In this cycle, Job reaches a low point. He expresses his despair as he resigns himself to the inevitability of death. He laments, my days have passed, my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. He has longed for the return of the light of God's favor to replace the darkness of his affliction, but he just doesn't see how that can happen. Uh, Bildad talks about snares. He uses six different words for trapping devices. He says the wicked person's path is dotted with many traps. It's like a a present-day minefield. While a wicked person is traveling on the road to success, his head raised proudly, His foot will unsuspectingly trip into the hidden snare and he will be caught. According to Bildad, this is what Job can expect to be caught in one of these traps. And this is the other verse that foreshadows the coming of, of the Messiah. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last will stand upon the earth. Job affirms his hope for future vindication by a kinsman redeemer, a goel. This is the very same word that's used in the book of Ruth for the kinsman redeemer. Who will represent his case by standing to testify as a witness on his behalf and will declare his innocence before those who have accused him. So Job transcends his miserable condition to catch a glimpse of a brighter future. In the third cycle, it's evident that Job and the friends are approaching an insoluble impasse. They keep talking past each other, but they aren't getting anywhere. In the third cycle, the speeches are markedly shorter than before. They're finally running out of things to say. With Bildad only offering a few words, and Zophar, the third friend, not speaking at all. The original tone of comfort has turned into condena- condemnation as the speakers become increasingly frustrated with one another. <laughs> the Friends give up on their efforts to coerce a confession from Job. Now they simply pronounce him guilty. They're just going to be judge and jury and get it over with and say, Job, you're guilty. You sinned. Whether you admit it or not, you sinned. So in this third cycle, Eliphaz becomes more concerned with protecting his own beliefs than with comforting Job. He takes a hostile tone of confrontation. He attacks Job's integrity. I'll show you you that later. Bildad, he just gives general platitudes that provide no real advance in the discussion. He contrasts the low degree of man (coughs) with the greatness of God. But that's never been in dispute. The the three friends and Job all agree that there's a vast gulf between man and God. Uh, That's not something that needs to be debated. But that's what Job, what what Bill did, gives in his third cycle. And as I mentioned before, Zophar doesn't speak at all. He's just given up on Job. There's no point in trying to convince him that he's wrong because he, he won't admit it. Job desires reconciliation with God but finds him unresponsive. God doesn't respond to him. God doesn't come and give him an answer. And he responds to to Bildad with sarcasm. In this third cycle, Eliphaz says something that's rather ironic. He says... Is it for your piety that he he rebukes you and charges brings charges against you? You know, it's ironic because of course your life has things your life has things. It's no, I mean, the answer is no that that God couldn't possibly be rebuking him for his piety, so he must have sinned. But if you know the whole story as we do as the readers of the book, what went on in heaven? That is exactly why. Job is suffering because of his piety, because of his great relationship with God. That's why Satan brought these severe trials upon him. So even though Eliphaz didn't say that in irony, it is ironic. Eliphaz charges Job with gross wickedness and proceeds to list a bill of particulars against him. So Eliphaz not only says, Job, you sinned, but these are the sins you committed. The alleged offenses of Job all relate to his treatment of other people. This is what Eliphaz says. Among the severe and false claims are that Job has extorted usury from his own family. He has withheld charity from the needy. He has abused his power for his personal gain. And he has oppressed widows and orphans. Well, there isn't any evidence to substantiate any of those claims, but uh, life has just makes them up out of whole cloth or thin air or wherever false accusations come from. After the three cycles, there is an interlude. So this chapter, chapter 28 functions as a transition from the three rounds of dialogue between Job and his three friends to three extended monologues by Job, Elihu, and Yahweh. So there's extended monologues that follow the three rounds of dialogue. The narrator brings the reader back to the fundamental issue of the whole debate. So in this debate between Job and his three friends, there's been a lot of dust thrown in the air So that there are so many arguments that you forget what is the main issue that they are discussing. Is wisdom within the grasp of human intelligence? They all claim to be basing their arguments on wisdom, but is wisdom really accessible to humans? This chapter demonstrates that only God understands the way to the wisdom that both Job and his friends have been unable to locate. Then we're introduced to a character called Elihu. And we've never heard of him before. He suddenly appears on the scene. One uh, commentator, commentator suggested that maybe Elihu was the stenographer. Maybe he was the person who was writing down all of these statements by Job and his three friends. But anyway, finally Elihu speaks. And he gives a series of speeches. A couple of speeches. The first one, he gives what he considers an accurate and decisive critique of Job's position, that God is unjust to attack him. So he's giving what he thinks is what Job has said, but as you will see when you read this, he's really exaggerating what Job has said and and kind of putting words in his mouth. So the things that he thinks Job has said isn't quite what Job has said. In the second speech, he, he, using the same logic as the friends, he views Job's situation strictly as a legal test case, not as a personal tragedy. And all of the, the friends, uh, the three friends, and Eli, who had, sort of have this tendency to just look at Job's situation in terms of uh, good and evil and sin and no sin, sin and righteousness, without really having any empathy or sympathy for Job. And what he's going through. The third speech of Elihu attempts to summarize and counter Job's claims as he hears them, what he thinks Job is saying. He tells us what he thinks is wrong with Job's arguments. And fourth, he looks at the result of suffering rather than the cause of suffering. So his fourth speech isn't really trying to figure out why Job is suffering, it's just talking about the results of suffering. And then after Elihu speaks, finally God appears on the scene and he speaks. The first round of Yahweh's speeches, he asks a series of questions, a lengthy series of questions about creation, about meteorological phenomena, you know, the rain and the snow and the hail and the frost. He, t- he talks about celestial phenomena, the, the constellations. And then he gives an extended discourse on the animal world. And he's asking Job, you know, where were you when the world was created? And can you understand how these things happen, and can you control them, more importantly? Uh, Implying that, Job, if you can't control these things, how can you possibly understand what is happening in your life? Job responds to Yahweh's first speech. He begins to turn from arguing against Yahweh to being silent before him. So, when God speaks, what can you say, of course? In the second round of Yahweh's speeches, he speaks at length about Behemoth and Leviathan, these strange and fantastic creatures, and I'll talk a bit more about them later. And Job's response to that is, he comes to an enlarged understanding of the wisdom and power of God. He begins to see that human wisdom and understanding are pretty limited when compared to God's. Now, behemoth and leviathan. Those who believe in in young earth creationism think that behemoth and leviathan are dinosaurs. Behemoth representing the land dinosaurs and leviathan representing the aquatic dinosaurs. So for example, the brontosaurus would be a good candidate under this understanding for the behemoth. And there's another picture of a brontosaurus. And notice the the massive tail of the brontosaurus. The verse from the book of Job says, he stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. So many modern scholars tend to equate this behemoth with with a hippopotamus or with a water buffalo. But the tails of hippopotami and water buffaloes really just aren't that impressive. <laughs> so uh, when when you... Consider that the tree, that the tail of this behemoth is like a cedar tree. It, uh, it seems that water buffalo and hippopotami are not very good candidates. And as far as the Leviathan, uh, he tends to be equated with the aquatic dinosaurs. This is a plesiosaurus with fins rather than legs. It was an aquatic dinosaur. Or it's possible, when, when you read uh, about the Leviathan, it's possible that it was um, an ancient variety of crocodiles that are much, much larger than the crocodiles of today. This is the, the largest variety of crocodiles that has been discovered. Uh, these crocodiles were up to 40 feet long and weighed eight tons. So it's possible when you read about the, the scales of the, of the Leviathan, it's possible that this is what it was. This is just kind of a, a ten, tendential thing about the book of Job, but there are a lot of scientific facts that are given in the book of Job. In the dialogues, this is, these are things that Job's three friends mentioned, things that Job mentions. Uh, there are some fascinating scientific insights. At least 15 scientific facts are suggested in the book of Job. And this is written in the second millennium BC. These things were not discovered by man until recent centuries. But here they are spoken in this inspired book of Job. One is the fact that the planet is uniquely designed for life. Scientists have a name for that. They call it the anthropic principle. All of the ratios and elements and laws of the universe are uniquely tuned to support life. And there's some interesting videos about that, about our, the incredible planet we live on and the universe we live in. Another is the hydrological cycle, the idea that water evaporates and circulates and then precipitates. We take that for granted. But how do clouds stay aloft? Water is heavier than air. How does the water stay in clouds? How is it supported? That's all described in the book of Job. Centuries before man had an understanding of how this all works. And then finally, in in Job 26, it says, he stretches the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. So that they understood in in the book of Job that the planet Earth is just suspended in space on nothing. And and you can contrast that with the cosmology of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians. I'm not sure which culture had the, the myth that the world was on the back of an elephant was standing on a giant turtle. I mean, you know, I'm not sure what the turtle was standing on, but <laughs> so there were all kinds of explanations of of how the cosmos worked. But these things were understood in scripture centuries before man. Yahweh gives his verdict in the epilogue. He rebukes the three friends for not speaking truthfully of him as Job had. So one of the things that, that we need to be careful about doing is when, when we look at the arguments of the three friends, there are some things in their arguments that seem, to, that seem to make sense, that seem to be sound, but we have to be very careful about quoting them because some of the things that they say are not true. And God says so. So we need to be careful about quoting from, the, from those passages uh, of the three friends' arguments. And Eli- Elihu is ignored. This is interesting because he's the man who claimed to be the mouthpiece of God. He's the one who claimed to be speaking for God. But God just ignores him. He doesn't even respond to him. And then finally, Job's restoration. The relationship with God is reaffirmed. God does reaffirm that he has a special relationship with Job. All of his social relationships that have been destroyed are restored. His property is increased twofold. His herds of livestock are now twice what they were previously. He's provided with seven more sons and three daughters. Some people wonder, well... All of Job's property is restored double. So why doesn't he get twice as many sons and twice as many daughters? Why does he have the same number as he had before? Well, he didn't really lose the ones he had before. So in the afterlife, he'll see all of his children. So he does have twice as many sons and twice as many daughters. Because he didn't really lose the ones he had before. Uh, He's also given 140 years. This is double the normal lifespan that we read about in Psalm 90, 70 years. He gets twice that, 140 years. So in the book of Job, we've been given various possibilities about why suffering. Why do, we have, why do humans suffer? And specifically, why did Job suffer? Well, the author, the narrator, says that suffering is pernicious, that Satan is behind it, at least in the case of Job, he was. Job says that suffering is a puzzle. He doesn't know why this is happening. You know, why me? Woe is me. He doesn't understand it. So he has a more sadistic attitude that he's suffering unjustly. The three friends say that suffering is penal, sin must be punished. So Job, if we're being punished, you must have sinned. And Elihu says that suffering purifies, that shortcomings cause pain, that they are the occasion for pain and suffering. Because we're imperfect, that's why we have to suffer. But when God appears on this scene, He says that suffering is providentially allowed. God's sovereignty is the source. So even when we don't understand why we're suffering, we don't have a clue as to why the the terrible things are happening in our lives. And we cry out to God because of our suffering. We can trust God that he knows what he's doing, that he has reasons, perhaps unknown to us as to why he is a long-suffering in our lives. We can trust God and we know that he's dependable, that he knows what he's doing and has good reasons for doing what he's doing, that he has a plan that he's working out and that plan may be much larger than, than we can possibly conceive of and that our suffering fits into the Overall, eternal plan of God. I always like the um, the tapestry illustration. That when you look at a tapestry, it's it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. But if you look behind the tapestry, it doesn't make any sense. And so God is weaving a beautiful tapestry. And just because we are right now only looking at the backside of the tapestry. Sometimes we can't understand what is going on. But one, way, one day we will see the tapestry that God is weaving in all of its glory. Let's conclude with order of prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you are dependable, that we can look to you that we know that you are a loving God who cares for us and meets our needs. And even when it seems that our friends have forsaken us, and perhaps it may seem that you have forsaken us, you are always present, that we are your people, that you love us, and you are working out things, everything for good. Help us to have the strength to have the faith to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.